Welcome back again, Internet Fitness Fam. This is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. I am your illustrious host, Sean. And today I have Josh Deck. Josh is a holistic nutritionist, a gut specialist, a medical lecturer, former paramedic, and the host of the Reversible uh, Podcast. Josh, thanks for coming on. Sean, it's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, yeah. So guts, gut health is your, that's your jam, right? Gut health, everything having to do with the gut. All right. So yeah, yeah we, uh, we all learn um, more and more these days that how important your gut is to your overall health and your well-being. It's being called by some as the second brain um, because it is that important. Mm-hmm. So now, when I was researching you, you referred to the healthcare system as not as healthcare, but as really as sick care. That's right. Um, pretty damning accusation. Um, so I kind of want to go over that with you, kind of just starting out with, let's just kick off there. Now, tell us what sick care is mm-hmm. in your words. Well, it really comes back to when I was working as a paramedic because... You know, I pick people up time and time again for the same issues over and over. I bring them Mm. to the hospital. I know the patient by name. I take them in. They get more of the same medication or an adjustment of the medication or a change in medication or a new one to stack on top of the medication for the symptoms they're already having. And people just stayed sick. No one ever actually got better. And I realized if I wasn't doing trauma of some kind, I was really just a glorified taxi for the ill. And to me, that wasn't healthcare because nobody was actually getting healthy. I saw the same things over and over. It was just medication after medication and symptom management. And it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And by a bit of happy accidents, I ended up becoming a personal trainer in my early 20s. Something I've been doing for a long time. And one of my first clients when I'm working full-time now professionally as a trainer, first client comes to see me. Her name is Lynn. She's 57 years old. She's got 17 pills and insulin for breakfast. She got nine pills and insulin for bedtime. She got high blood pressure. She's on the CPAP machine to sleep. Um, she's on the disability list at work. She got all these things just getting worse and worse and worse. And for me, it just wasn't cutting. And I thought, we, let's see what we can do. I just was curious. So we got her strength training. We got her nutrition in play, all kinds of great stuff that you'd expect somebody in the fitness world to do. And by the time she was 59, she was off all but two medications. She had them only two because of a surgery she had recently. Um, She wasn't on CPAP anymore. Blood pressure was normal. She was no longer on disability at work. And we took it one step further. At age 59, she ended up breaking her first world record in the bra powerlifting division uh, as, as a weightlifter at 59 years old and kept breaking records, most of them hers, until she was 61, 62. And I realized very quickly that the body is capable, much more so, than the Western medical system. Up to this point, her doctors had her on 26 different medications and CPAP and all kinds of things to band-aid the breakdown of the body. And in just two years, she went from this disaster to just thriving more so than anybody else in her age group. Like she's definitely in the top, you know, three percentile. Um, and so that to me was remarkable. And that is healthcare. It's putting the body in the circumstance or giving it what it needs to actually begin healing itself and supporting those natural processes, whereas sick care is just managing the symptoms of the breakdown so we don't notice it quite as much. Big, big difference. So um, you are talking to me from, I'm just curious because I want a comparison here. Now, when we talk about sick care, um, 
I mean, a lot of us, I, I think a lot of people listening here are in the United States. You're in Calgary, mm-hmm. which is in Canada. Um, is it the same up there as it is down there in terms of its uh, disposition towards healthcare? Very much so. And sometimes I would say we're either on par, if not the states is slightly worse. And the reason I say that is because the way the, the USDA allows food production and the FDA allows and approves things in our food, you know, from a, from a standpoint of a gut specialist. So I've worked in a lot of different areas of gut. And over the last few years, I've moved from IBS primarily now it's IBD. So instead of irritable bowel syndrome, it's inflammatory bowel disease, which is Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, which is a very severe debilitating disease. We're talking for our listeners, hope they're not easily grossed out, but imagine having 30, 40, 50 bowel movements a day, sometimes with blood and mucus. And every time you go, it feels like you're giving birth. And this is what I've been told by clients who have given birth. I have no reason not to believe them. And so it's a very severe, debilitating disease. It comes with fatigue and migraines and pain and all kinds of stuff. Many of them lose their jobs from having you know, so much sick leave. Medication is ten dollars to $20,000 a month on average. And so they really are cash cows. But if we look at statistically, right, back around 1990, there was about 3 million cases of inflammatory bowel disease worldwide, right, all over the globe. Today, there's about 7 million. Now, the issue is 7 million cases worldwide, but 50% are in the United States alone, which is 5% of the global population. So when 5% has 50% of the world's issues, I would say it's a pretty dire situation for the health of the United States of America. And looking at gut issues in general, bloat, constipation, diarrhea, um, any kind of pain, discomfort, like these types of things, 72% of Americans complain of some kind of gut issue like that at least once a week. And so we have this slippery slope where maybe today it's bloat, tomorrow it's constipation or diarrhea, the next day it's acid reflux, and now you have food sensitivities and allergies, and now three years down the road, you've got irritable bowel syndrome. 15 years later, you've got inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So we see this slippery slope starting to happen over time and it's isolated to the United States. It's actually quite shocking. And so comparatively, Canada, the US, they're both highly problematic. Canada has a ton of irritable bowel syndrome, but the United States has some of the worst inflammatory bowel disease on the planet. So it's really more like a case like, you know, you're sleeping next to a dog with fleas, you're going to get the fleas too. Is that kind of like it is with Canada? <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, that's a great way to put it. We get a lot of imports and stuff that come up from the U.S., a lot of the laws. You know, we used to actually have American milk was banned for a long time in Canada. They started importing it over the last few years. Surprise. That's because of how they produce it. Your mm-hmm. chicken, pork, beef, it's banned in countries all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, China, Russia, EU. Like They won't take it because of how it's produced and the chemicals they put in it. It's highly toxic, and this is what it is. What do you think uh, just uh, precipitated all of this, too? Because, you know, you said, like, from 1990, which is now 33 years on, that's a reasonably long span of time, mm-hmm. um, the number of, like, abdominal issues has gone from, like, 3 to 7 million now. But obviously, like, fast food and, like, um, mass marketed mass-produced foods didn't start in 1990 that's right um now it's like was it like next to nothing before or was it like pretty dismal before it got to we got to about the 1990 mark and then suddenly things just got ratcheted up ever since do you know 
Yeah, I, I would I would suspect and this is based on research I actually did for a lecture recently on bowel disease and the the, prim, the the prominence of it, the development in the modern world. And when we started looking at the data, I used 1990 because that was the earliest available data. But we can mm -hmm. always extrapolate back a little bit further. You know, if we look at things. And this is a common argument that correlation does not equal causation, which means just because it may look related doesn't mean it's the root. Right. I get that. But also in functional medicine and holistic practice, we have to understand that correlation is worth consideration. A lot of times professionals will completely disregard and then we can unquestionably prove it's the cause. Well, that's why we still have fast food and sugar and all kinds of stuff. Because no matter how many studies you, you, you have or you can produce, there's always one or two cherry pick contradicting it. And we go, well, it's not proven. So. I am using correlative data. If we look at the 1950s and 60s, right? Obesity was just 14% at the high end. Now, 40 plus percent, 40, 42% of America is considered obese. 70% is considered overweight. And so we have 90, what, 93% to 97% is not considered metabolically healthy. Their whole metabolism, their cellular processes as a whole, they're not healthy. And if we look at what happened in the 50s and 60s, we had fast food really hit bit more mainstream burgers and fries and fried food now mcdonald's for example used to do their french fries in beef tallow so that's beef fat but now it's all done in these seed oils vegetable or canola or whatever else they can find that's cheap but again the way food production works it's all about capitalism right it's all about money it's always the bottom line follow the dollar well food production really isn't that profitable because there's a lot of management, a lot of shipping, a lot of preserve, a lot of waste, a lot of all kinds of stuff. There's billions of dollars worth of food in the U.S. each year that go bad because they're just not used, right? It's a lot of shipment and import and all kinds. So timing gets messed up. And so what they've done is they've added more things into the food, one, to thin it out so that food goes further. They need to pay for less. Two, chemicals are cheaper. And three, the shelf life is better. Look at McDonald's, prime example. In the UK, their French fries have three ingredients. Whatever oil they're using, vegetable oil or canola, whatever they use, they have salt and they have potato. In America, 17 different ingredients, all of which are going to be chemical additives next to your potato itself. And so even the food is being modified so greatly for higher profit margins. We have foods in the last 50, 80, 100 years that never existed before in human history. And so we have modern foods. Well, correlated to that is these modern diseases, right? Mm -hmm. More digestive disease, inflammatory diseases. We have more arthritis than ever, Alzheimer's, more cancer than ever. We celebrate that people are living longer with cancer, but more people are getting cancer. So what's there to celebrate? Right. And this is the issue that I find with the health system that really seems to drive it. It is the profit. It is the corruption of the FDA, the USDA, and all these organizations sort of coalition together. I mean, you look at people who come off of pharmaceutical companies and boards who go and work for the US Department of Agriculture or the Food and Drug Administration. They start approving things now that everybody starts getting rich and everybody else around them gets sicker. And that's the problem that we're facing. You ever seen the movie The Founder? No. The founder, it's about Ray Kroc, the guy who essentially built McDonald's. Yes. McDonald's. Now, I watched that, and now as you were speaking about all this, about all the uh, cost-cutting corners that they – all the cost-cutting uh, corners that they take in order to keep uh, costs down, um, it's really kind of – it's explored actually in that movie mm. because you, know, you see Ray Kroc as he is like he – as he's wrestling away – the McDonald's restaurant away from its two true founders as he's wrestling in a way, he's finding ways that he can actually turn this into a big chain, 
you can actually you know take it to every state and make a, a larger profit for least amount of money spent. You see him going through that process. You see him um, kind of bastardizing what the McDonald's brothers had started. Like he's using cheaper ingredients. Mm-hmm. He's finding better ways to store foods, you know, stuff like that. That you know, foods that maybe don't require refrigeration, which is a huge cost. Um, and all that stuff here. So it's really, it's really interesting. So you should check that out yourself. You know, you should yeah, look, check out the, check out the founder there too. I mean, that's not a huge part of the movie, but it is the whole like co-opting or perversion of food in the United States. And of course the explosion of McDonald's itself, which, you know, has, like you just said, has huge implications across the board. Well, it's um, staggering. And a lot of that has to do with, like you said, the production, they've kind of assembly lined the food. But yeah, to make it taste exactly. the same from Canada to the U.S. to the U.K., they have to treat all their food with chemicals to make them taste the exact same. Mm-hmm. But you and I, you and I know, if you eat, a, you know, uh, an apple from Iowa and I eat one from B.C. here in Canada, they're going to taste very different, even if they're the same breed of apple, because of the soil, the nutrients, the everything, and they treat everything so much with chemicals to make it taste the same across the world. Mm-hmm. And that's scary, and and that's a big part of the problem is how chemically treated our food is. Yeah, and it's it's kind of startling because it's like it's an open secret. Like we know McDonald's is bad, and you know no one produces any legislation to say ban McDonald's because it's mm-hmm. killing it's killing kids. <laughs> it is. Um, it's killing kids, and by you know association, going to kill adults because they're going to grow into very sickly, not long living adults. But it's also the same with like cigarettes too. Like you mentioned that you know the argument. Uh, against like they're against a uh, correlation versus causation you know it's kind of the same they used for cigarettes back in the day i don't remember if you remember that whole fiasco um it was like if you have 10 people who smoke cigarettes for the same amount of time for 50 years 10 people who smoke cigarettes for 50 years eight of them die from lung cancer but two of them walk away with not even so much as a cough mm-hmm. well then you can't call it causation you know, yeah. that was their argument, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they used to promote cigarettes to pregnant women. You know yeah. what I mean? And then once they got, you know, banned for that because they were able to actually de- definitively prove that they were problematic, they just moved on to another marketing campaign. Yeah. And that's really what it is. I mean, and I, I know a lot of people come after me for, you know, having a tinfoil hat. Um, but it's interesting to me because if we follow the data, we know the government will not allow things like um, raw milk right? Things have to be pasteurized. Eggs have to be treated. All the vegetables are sprayed and covered in pesticides and all kinds of things that we know are highly detrimental to our health, yet they promote fast food, drinking, smoking, all these things that we also know are highly detrimental to our health. I mean, 70 plus percent of the commercials in the US are either fast food or pharmaceutical drugs. After that, what do you have? I think maybe it's even 70% are pharmaceuticals 11 percent are fast food something like that and the rest is whatever government or toy or small business and so the actual active promotion is towards things that make people ill or only mask symptoms of people who are actively ill which allows them to continue getting sicker and sicker in the background until it's undeniable and now they have a diagnosis a diagnosis of some kind of disease so you work at this uh, this institute is called Primary Health Academy, is that right? Uh, Priority Health Academy. Priority right. Priority Health Academy. Okay, so where you teach actual medical doctors about gut health. That's is that right. 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 Okay, that's interesting because they're already doctors, right? 
So they already have their medical license. They're already practicing physicians. And yet here they are, they're learning about gut health. Now, here's the million dollar question. Why did they not learn any of this while they were in hmm. medical school? It's really interesting. Is it PHA or Priority Health Academy is a great space. Um, I got brought on by a doctor that I actually kind of ran into by accident who brought me into lecture a couple of times a year. And it's a functional medicine academy. And really what it is, is a bunch of doctors who have come in. It's an open source. It's not like a university okay. like Harvard or something. It's an online academy where doctors who want to, they realize that the Western medicine world is basically poison. It's a toxic world. And they want to understand functional medicine to get into healthcare. Because even medicine, it's cookbook medicine, it's sick care. Doctors will go in and they'll learn in school, very little critical thinking. This is from doctors who have graduated med school. They're taught to follow the protocols, don't ask questions, just do the things, which again is all paid for, lobbied and structured for by drug companies. And so unfortunately, a lot of doctors come out of there being glorified pharmaceutical reps, even though it wasn't their intention, they do. They just, they go through now and they're taught, assess the symptoms. Once you have those symptoms, if it fits into the box of this diagnosis, you give that diagnosis. Once they have that diagnosis, drugs one, two, three, four, or five in this order are given to that patient. The problem is people come in and there's a little bit of gray area, maybe 70% they fit to this diagnosis and doctors go, well, there's nothing wrong with you. I don't know what to do. I can't help you. Here's an antidepressant to make you feel better about it. And that's it. We see this all the time. And it's really messed up because we can very easily in the critical thinking, functional medicine, holistic world, we can, we, we can really track the breakdown of people over time. We can say, well, okay, today you're having bloat. You're having a bit of indigestion and acid reflux. I will correlate that to digestive enzymes and food and gut bacteria and stomach acid and predict in this time, you will likely have problem X, Y, and Z. You'll have more bloat, food sensitivities, leaky gut. You'll get some loose stool or constipation, whichever form of inflammation your body has. Um, and then as this happens, you'll start to develop food sensitivities or allergies or skin issues or fatigue or hormonal issues. Something will happen. Typically, anxiety gets in there somewhere. And as that happens, this many years go by, and then this next step happens, and then you have this disease. And we can, we can track the breakdown. Unfortunately, doctors aren't taught that. Right? This is why if you only fit 70% of the diagnosis, they'll go, well, there's nothing wrong with you. It's called medical gaslighting. We don't know how to treat this because I've not been told how to manage the breakdown. I've only been told how to manage symptoms with this drug. But you don't qualify for this drug because you don't match the symptoms exactly. We're not checking the boxes. Therefore, you can't have a treatment. Therefore, I don't know what to do. Therefore, nothing is wrong with you. And that's a huge problem in the medical system. And we have doctors who say this stuff all the time who have left that system. That's why. Because they say it's cookbook medicine. It's protocol following. It's not critical thinking. It's only sick care. Now, Western medicine, I will credit them. They are phenomenal. They do a phenomenal job at surgery and mm -hmm. emergencies. That is it. Chronic long-term inflammatory conditions. I mean, looking at gut health, for example, right? These chronic long-term inflammatory conditions, they're connected to the gut. In fact, 93% of the leading causes of death in the USA can be connected back to the gut in some way, either responsible for or strongly correlated to. That's going to be things like heart disease, um, cancers, strokes, respiratory issues. Um, that's things like even asthma come right back to the gut, diabetes, Alzheimer's, liver issues, kidney issues, Parkinson's, um, influenza, septicemia, or like septic in the blood. Uh, these different issues that we see can be connected back to the gut. I mean, almost anything we could argue can be connected back to the gut because up to 70 to 90%, arguably, of your entire immune system is governed by your gut. 
So if you're chronically getting sick and you have gut issues, we can look at the gut. And so this is what we teach physicians because this is all I do is just gut. I had the pleasure of educating them on how to better manage gut health and understand the broader picture. And they also educate me in kind with the knowledge that they have in the functional medicine space. So it's a very wonderful organization to be a part of. So, all right. So it's completely voluntary, right? Like going in, is it going into the uh, priority health Academy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you have like um, doctors who, who want to get better, but didn't really get trained the way they should have been taking their own time and actually learning more. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of okay. like going back to school, right? I mean, yeah, there's, there's fees and all kinds of educational fees and stuff at certain levels. You know, when you come in, it's like, just come in, check it out. We're here for free. If you want to get involved, then there is, you know, financial like school, right? School is voluntary. Going to med school is voluntary. And outside of that, as a professional in any type of profession, really educating yourself further and bettering, your, bettering yourself is voluntary. Unfortunately, most professionals will go, I've gone to school. I've seen this with personal trainers when I was personal training, right? Well, I've been in the industry for 10 years. I know more than you. It's like, honey, no, you, you don't. Like I get this guy. I'm like, oh, babe, like you're, you're just an idiot because you kind of repeated the third grade 10 years in a row. And that's unfortunate because we have a lot of practitioners who have gone to school and they haven't taken themselves further after that. They've just got practice right. and there's no actual formal education. And that's why a lot of these guys, I'm like, oh, honey, no, like that's not, that's not true. It gets old data, but you're still practicing the old data. Like many doctors today still think nutrition doesn't matter. Straight up think the food you eat has no bearing on your health. I'm like, honey, that's old data. And so that's one of the issues I run into in this space, seeing clients who are working with these doctors actively for gut disease and their doctor, you know, John Smith will come in and say, well, you eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I'm like, honey, no, that's bad. Like you're hurting your patient, <laughs> you know? You've met doctors that say that nutrition does not matter constantly. That Particularly is particularly GI that's specialists. Extremely okay. alarming when GI specialists like like gut specialists will say and it's 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 very much in the gut disease space. They'll say well food has no bearing on your health or food does not cause this disease. So eat whatever you want it doesn't matter. Like in the same breath you also tell them to cut out gluten and dairy. So which is it? You know, it's it's really ironic, but that's that critical mm -hmm. thinking piece that doesn't get executed. It's really unfortunate. Yeah, I've, it's it is kind of weird too because you you do notice like sometimes like you have patients like you know, you know, people have cancer, right? And there's no restrictions on what they're eating. You know, you they'll you see them eating just normally as if there's nothing wrong with them. They don't have this cancer that's just spreading everywhere and you see them just kind of like no one tells them like maybe you shouldn't be eating pizza all the time or sugar i mean look what they feed them in the hospital right you'll come off like a uh, an iv treatment for cancer some kind of chemotherapy and you'll go down the cafeteria will bring you white bread with processed meat with ketchup which is high fructose corn syrup a thing of jello which is more sugar corn syrup corn syrup yeah. solids and food dye and then they'll give you a can of pop <laughs> like you just had 150 grams of sugar for lunch no wonder you have cancer Cancer loves sugar above all else. And so even the sick care system has food that makes people sick. It's, it's absolutely horrific. Now, do you have to like completely eliminate uh, things like sugar from your diet here or you just have to really kind of scale it down a great deal? It depends on the condition. I mean, you know, working in the space of gut health and gut disease specifically like Crohn's and colitis, sugar, gluten, dairy, alcohol, 
all those things I cut out immediately because I look at it like, and people want to live their lives normally. And I get that. Unfortunately, normal means eating a lot of these junk foods. It's pizza, French fries, burgers, you know, going out, kind of eating whatever you want because our culture is very nutritionally ill and so to them normal is just eating like their friends are eating which is crap food they're just their friends are lucky they're not sick yet and so that's something we need to look at changing but we know that these things all contribute however i do look at it kind of like having a broken leg right if you have severe gut disease crohn's or colitis or severe ibs or something else going on you have to treat your body your gut like you just shattered your leg you just went in for surgery Okay, we're about to start piecing things back together. We're going to put bolts and screws and pins and put a cast on you, but you can't even walk on it. But everyone's trying to jump on a trampoline by eating sugar and French fries right after because that's quote normal. Mm -hmm. And so if we treat it like a broken leg, as your leg starts to repair, you can start to walk and weight bear. Eventually you'll jog and run, but give it time. And that's a tolerance issue. And so a lot of people need to understand that their gut, even though it's still not ideal, you know, take a hammer to your leg and re-break it. That's kind of what sugar and alcohol are doing. You can tolerate it better when your bone is fully hardened. You can, you can, you know, tolerate the odd beating. Um, even though obviously we want you to treat your bones with some respect and some love, you can get away with it. And that's kind of how I look at food and gut disease. Do you need to cut it out for now? Absolutely. If you truly want to heal gluten, sugar, alcohol, grains, even some nightshades, um, stress, like all these things need to be managed because you are so fragile right now, but you can have a greater tolerance for other things as time goes on. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what really are like the right foods and supplements and exercises that people can do? Um, say whether they have these conditions or not. Mm -hmm. well, that's a great question, you know, because people often ask again, what can I get away with? And mm -hmm. that's a big problem. Obviously, the things you give to sick people, you should give to healthy people because what you give to sick people is made to make them healthy. So if you want to stay healthy, eat those things, right? That's just as simple as it is, right. regardless of tolerance. But it, it really is as simple. There's so many ways people look at it. Well, should you eat this vegetable or that vegetable or this, this meat, that meat, this animal product? I do typically advocate for an animal-based diet. I have found mm -hmm. in my practice, especially with gut issues, it makes people better. People mm -hmm. get healthier. But there are other clinicians and doctors, very famous doctors, who do advocate for plant-based diets. And so it really does depend on the individual and their circumstance. So I say, number one, if your great-great-great-grandmother would not recognize that food you're eating, don't eat it which basically bars out every fast food, every chip, every process, every candy, every donut, all these things. They never had those things. It was just food that they farmed. And so that's number one, to find it easily. Number two, the perimeter of the grocery store. It's that easy. Fruits, vegetables, meat products, animal products. Everything down the aisle comes in a package or has a chemical of some kind. And that's kind of the basic lay of the land. But if someone has a lot of bloat, a lot of gas, a lot of digestive issues, I might recommend, I do a lot of like stool sampling. So I do what's called GI mapping, where you can visually sort of see a bit more appropriately the gut bacteria. Now, gut bacteria are very important. But we have to recognize, I say they're more important than our DNA, because when you look in the mirror, what you'll see when you're looking at Sean, what you'll see reflecting back at you is maybe 20 to 30% your actual cells. Everything else is bacteria, fungi, microbes of some kind. Your gut bacteria outnumber your own cells 10 to 1 right? You have 23,000 genes in the human genome, but 3 million different genes inside of your gut bacteria, right? Two to 3% of your entire body weight is just bacteria. 
right? Inside of your gut rather is just, is, is just bacteria. So we have pounds and pounds of this stuff that integrate with every aspect, every fiber of our being. They do everything. They communicate with DNA and our genetics and they produce vitamins, they detox, they balance hormones. They do all kinds of stuff. They mature immune cells. And if you're having overgrowths of good or bad bacteria, when you feed them things that they like, because you eat, you poop. Your bacteria eat, your bacteria also poop. And so are they pooping good things or bad things? Do you give them sugars, fermentable fibers, all kinds of starches and carbohydrates, be it vegetables or not, they can still break those down and poop whatever they poop. And so if you have a dominance of overgrowth of bad bacteria and you feed them even starches, vegetable starches or fruit fibers and fruit sugars, they will still eat first and overgrow. And so in the cases of that, I re might recommend some digestive enzymes and some digestive support but maybe more of an animal-based or even leaning carnivore diet because you don't want to feed fermentable carbs to these bacteria so they will then overgrow and poop out these bad things. You want to starve them down a little bit. And so I might lean towards this animal-based diet, whereas somebody who has a very poor, um, we'll say, diversity of microbes, right? You have upwards of 15, 20 million different bacteria in your gut, which make up a hundred trillion of them. But if you don't have a nice variety, maybe you only have three or 5 million different types, not 20 million types, I might give you more of a fermented vegetable, plant-based sort of exploratory diet to reintroduce some new bacteria to increase your diversity, which does aid in the gut and health and leaky gut and all those things. So it really does depend what diet I recommend does tend to depend on the bacterial profiles of somebody's stool sample and GI map when I actually see what bacteria they have and ratios in their gut. So you have more gut bacteria than DNA cells. Yeah, 10 to correct? 1. 10 yep. to 1? Than your okay. own body cells, yeah. Right. So are things like colitis and all that kind of stuff there, like digestive issues there, are they, are they things that are kind of are they hereditary at all or is it just kind of things that are just like a, a result largely things of result of how you live your life well it's interesting because this is what i've actually most recently lectured on and you know i made a post a while back on my facebook i said i, I firmly believe nine of the ten cases of ulcerative colitis can be fully reversed i got flamed i got harassed somebody took it to reddit and blew me up uh, i had people booking up my calendars nope at fu.com like just like I got threatened over it because people take it very, very seriously, as you should. It's a serious disease, but they don't understand. Now we're talking autoimmune diseases, right? It's commonly accepted knowledge that about 25% in the functional medicine space, 25% of autoimmunity is genetic. Not saying you're guaranteed to get autoimmunity, but you're more predisposed to autoimmunity through genetic factors. So that means 75% you have total control over. And we have to see it as a spectrum, turning up the dial or turning down the dial of severity of this disease process. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, something I'm arguing, because the Western world says IBD is autoimmune, it's genetic or environmental, and it's also what they call idiopathic, meaning no known cause. So we don't know what's causing it. Well, I can sure as hell make a correlative guess, even though I can't make a causative guess. When we look at 50% of the world's cases confined to 5% of the population, if you're telling me it's idiopathic, no known cause, you better figure it out pretty fast. And if it's just genetic in 5% of the population, it's 50% of these diseases, that's a statistical improbability. It cannot happen. So it can't just be genetic. It can't just be unknown. 
It's got to be at least environmental, food-related, lifestyle, or something related that the U.S. is doing worse than everybody else, which, again, comes back to food. they got 17,000 different types of pesticides they use. Pesticide usage has come up two to four times in the last 30 years, and pesticide variety consumption has gone up 19 times due to the amount of pesticides now in our food, the import-exports, our chronic stress lifestyles, our poor diet choices, processed foods, packaged and refined foods. There's so much that's contributing to this breakdown. And so my lectures, I'm actually arguing. See, the Western world has spent a long time saying that irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease are very different diseases, but the symptoms are almost identical. Again, it's just that dial of severity is turned up a little bit where IBS might have you know a little bit of bloat, constipation, diarrhea, whatever it is, a little bit of inflammation. Worst case, a little bit of blood or mucus, but inflammatory bowel disease is very severe. It's a lot more immune activity. It's a lot more blood mucus, a lot worse in bowel movements. I've had people come in who have 30, 50 bowel movements a day, some who have one every two to three weeks, and it has to be medically induced, which is obviously a problem. And so we see these severities just turned up. So I argue that they're actually along the same spectrum. They're just different until the severity gets so bad, it does become autoimmune. But again, the problem is Western medicine says it's only autoimmune. And I'm arguing it's not. And this is why I actually got into this Priority Health Academy in the first place is I got brought on because one of these doctors and very well-known doctors. He's quite you know, regarded worldwide. He does a lot of lecturing and works with some very famous doctors. Um, but he was working with this patient for three years. I saw her for three months and she turned around tenfold. She was almost completely reversed in just three months. And that's when he called me up and said, hey, we got a chat, started talking. We co-shared some patients and he gave me an invite to come lecture at this academy. Um, and, and that's just the beauty of medicine is that and a lot of these doctors can go, well, I want to learn more. You know, my ego isn't in the way. I don't have this God complex. And a lot of them in this functional space don't. They're very, very wonderful that way. Um, but anyways, that's sort of how I see gut disease as a severity. It might start today, like a little bit of bloat, a little bit of acid reflux. And maybe you're just taking an antacid or something, which makes acid reflux much worse. I promise that things break down get worse. Maybe it's IBS today. In 10, 15 years, it could be IBD, this Crohn's colitis. And, and that's sort of where I see things coming from. So ideally, you, do, you don't really want to experience any kind of uh, abdominal discomfort at all, because you're right. Like most of the time you see, uh, most people that come into the emergency room, um, their triage comments are very sort of like broad statements saying like abdominal pains, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, which, you know, it really doesn't tell you anything. It's just kind of an umbrella term, I think. Um, so I, ideally, you really don't want to feel any kind of uh, abdominal discomfort at all. Now, can it be ever a case where it's just like, um, well, it's very acute, right? It's acute right now. It came, it was there for about maybe an hour. Now it's gone. I don't know I've ever felt anything like that before. But you're telling, but you're saying that that's probably... Um, probably stage one of something worse coming down the coming down the mountain later it's quite possible i mean we have to recognize that every symptom we have is a byproduct of dysfunction yeah. whether you have a runny nose and you got a virus creating dysfunction or upregulation of your immune system whether you have an infection of some kind that causes 
you know, gut issues and cramping, bloating or something, those are transient and they're acute. That's fine. That's just your body upregulating the immune system, right? Inflammation is a byproduct of your immune system doing its job. It's bringing in extra blood. So it's dilated the, the, the blood vessels. The nerves are a bit hyperstimulated. So there's a bit more pain there and irritation. That's your body healing itself. Those are good things. It's your body just doing its thing. The problem is when we have chronic insult to the tissue, we have chronic irritation, chronic inflammation. I mean, look at leaky gut, for example, right? It's a great one. If someone comes in, they have leaky gut. We're always told leaky gut's bad, and it is. But leaky gut is actually a good thing. It's a defense mechanism. If something enters your body, right, be it food poisoning or gluten is a great example. Gluten causes leaky gut for everyone. What happens, your body actually recognizes, there's this receptor, there's these toll-like receptors they're called. So toll-like receptor number four, it's between the small intestine and the stomach. It's kind of at the doorway, like a guard standing guard. And things will come in and enter the belly or they'll enter the intestines. And these receptors will say, okay, you may pass or you shall not pass. I'll Gandalf that. And so what happens is these toll-like receptors recognize gluten as a pathogenic or a dangerous bacteria. That's what it looks like molecularly. The structure is similar. And so gluten comes in and these toll-like receptors open the floodgates. They actually spread the cells of the intestines to open apart to draw water in so they can flush things out, create diarrhea and move it out as quick as we can. We don't want this. It's bad. So just push it through. It's easier a lot of the time to go down than it is to come back up. And so they're kind of hosing down the driveway, so to speak, right? They're washing it off. The problem is when we have chronic inflammation on a low grade or a high grade level, that leaky gut becomes bi-directional. So not only does water leak in to flush things out, but these leaks get bigger and bigger. And so macro molecules, not micromolecules, right? Things that are too big start passing through. Well, it's only one cell between your small intestine, your bloodstream, or getting into your lymphatics. And so one cell, this, this stuff passes through. Big chunks of food, bacteria, pathogens, all these things now enter your bloodstream, circulate around the body, creating leaky everything, leaky lung, leaky brain, you get joint pain, you get skin issues, all kinds of toxicity problems, you get these systemic inflammation. And so leaky gut in this chronic inflammatory process is a very bad thing. But again, acute leaky gut, like a little bit of bloat came and went for an hour, had some diarrhea, I'm fine now. That could be your body protecting you. But when you're chronically eating fast food, processed food, fried food, tons of glue, alcohol, sugars, they feed into bad bacteria. They feed these inflammatory processes. These leaks become bi-directional. And now what should be just in the gut moving through, absorbing normally, things are actually passing through, we'll say illegally crossing this border to get where they shouldn't be causing problems where there should be no problems. Is it possible you could like uh, reset some of the stuff here by going through like say like a long fast or something like that? But, you know, we've heard of you know you've heard of intermittent fasting sure. and it's kind of it's gotten a lot of press on the last several years. A lot of people speak very highly of it. You know, they do it consciously um, or unconsciously. You know, I typically go about twelve hours before I have another meal. You can call that a fast if you want. Sure. It's just kind of how when my metabolism actually starts waking up saying, okay, I'm ready to have some food now. But sometimes I go a little bit longer. And, you know, I have done it in an intentional way before. I can say that it it can be rough at times, but it, it, it is, after a while, it gets to be much smoother sailing. Now, we hear about these long fasts, like really long fasts, like seven days uh, without any solid foods, like maybe just like water or something like that. And then somebody just completely flushing out their metabolic system. 
ridding it of every possible um, contaminant that might be in there that's causing their problem and just kind of like hitting the reset button mm -hmm. and then starting over again. Uh, fasting isn't new to people at all. It's been around for as long as people have been around. I mean, even going back to pre-civilization, you had to fast because you don't get, you're not guaranteed a meal every day. Sure. <laughs> so um, you had to fast even if you want to. Now, some people do it for religious practices and things like that. But can like a really long fast really benefit you? Like, can it really like do the wonders of saying like getting rid of IBS and, and colitis and all that stuff and just kind of like letting you start again on page one? Well, some would argue maybe. I mean, there are a lot of doctors out there, um, many of which have died just over time, um, who would argue that, yeah, if you do like a one-month, two-month fast, some will advocate for months at a time, which I've never done. My longest fast is four days. Um, but a lot of these things, we have to be metabolically flexible. Mm -hmm. Most people are not metabolically flexible. This is why they get really irritable. If they go more than a couple hours without food, their sugar starts to drop, they get really edgy, they get hangry. And we've kind of made it a cultural joke but being hangry is actually a lack of metabolic flexibility right i'm i'm comfortable fasting i'll fast for a few days at a time here and there i'll just pick a random day and fast like it's not an irregularity for me to fast um and so if I go a day or two without food i'm perfectly fine i have energy i'm clear i think well in fact you know i've got some big interviews coming up on some really large podcasts and i'm actually going to fast that day because my brain is actually a lot sharper i'm fasting mm -hmm. right now i haven't actually eaten yet since you know dinner yesterday it's been I don't know, 12 16 hours or something 18 hours Same. and i feel great right Same. yeah but you have metabolic flexibility so your metabolism can move energy sources very easily it can upregulate downregulate when we fast 12 hours is sort of the starting point of your mitochondria upregulating energy production most people, you'll notice that Americans tend to age a lot worse than a lot of other cultures. And we often joke, well, Asians don't age very quickly because they're Asian. Yeah, there's a genetic component there. But they're also more accustomed to fasts and cultural things like the Middle East. They do fasting. They do Ramadan. Right. We don't. And so our mitochondria, our energy production is very poor. Um, our telomeres with this DNA replication. Right. Um, they, they shrink a lot faster. We don't protect them with protective hormones, which come from fasting. And so we age quicker. We perform worse. Our energy's down. We're more sluggish. We move less. And these things age us faster. They create inflammation. On the other hand, you know, I got a buddy of mine. I was actually my, my tattoo artist. He'll come in and he, he did a 10 day fast, nothing but water. Came in on his 10th day and pulled a record on his deadlift. I'm like, I've never seen that before. I brought it to some physiologists and some friends of mine. They're like, Dude's a mutant. Like I've never seen that. But we've not explored in Western culture long extended fasts and their benefits to things like strength training. You know, others will say you have to rest while you're fasting and you know, take it very easy. I truthfully don't know enough about it. I'm actually releasing an episode here this week, actually, with Dr. Paul Merrick, um, who's one of the most well-researched, well-documented cited doc he's been cited over 47,000 times in medical literature he's got every certification under the sun he's been in medicine longer than i've even been alive um and we actually have him on talking about fasting so that's that's where i would go for some knowledge on that you actually i can tell you you actually do not need to rest whatsoever while you're fasting i ran an i ran an obstacle course on no, on nearly tw uh, 20 hours of no food wow um yeah and yeah and I, I felt great at the end of which, I mean, it was about maybe another hour. I went almost about a, a, an entire day before I actually got actually getting any food in my stomach. I felt great, you know? So no, you really don't. And as That's far awesome. as your friend goes, um, uh, maxing out a PR on like 
what was it, 10 days of mm-hmm. fasting or something like that? You should, have, you should have uh, had his blood draw. I, know, I thought the same thing. I'd love to see what's going on in there. Right. I mean, yeah, his hormones got to be through the roof. Right. You should have had his blood drawn and had his blood tested right after he did that. Because <laughs> I'd be so curious to see what his, uh, his blood work looked like from doing Absolutely. something like that. That's incredible. Oh, uh, okay. So, so fasting is kind of like fasting is like it's a big maybe. Yeah, like, if you don't have the what you said the metabolic flexibility for it, it's probably not going to work out too too well. Is hangry really? Is that really medically even a thing, or is that just like something that I'm just cranky because I haven't had anything to eat? Is no. it like is it like going through withdrawal? <laughs> I mean, technically, it's a chemical withdrawal, right? I mean. People who are hangry, that's their blood sugar dropping, their insulin's throwing around because their body's not metabolically flexible. It's not used to tapping into different energy sources. And so right. if you don't give it those carbs or that whatever it's looking for right now, it's going to get a little irritable because your body is craving something. So your hormones are shifting. But you get people who have like IBS or colitis. I guess I maybe didn't answer that the first time, so I apologize. Um, but the question is, is fasting good for people with gut issues? I say no. And the reason I say that is because they're already very sick. Their bacteria profiles are a problem. They got all kinds of digestive metabolic issues. So to force someone who's, we'll say, very stiff to start stretching, you're going to pull a muscle. To force someone into metabolic flexibility who's already highly inflamed and toxic and having issues, you might create more problems, not just chemical stress responses, but you might have bacterial die-off issues, might have toxicity problems. And so with these people, because their digestion is compromised, right? Again, back to the broken leg analogy, you have trouble walking, running, jogging, all these different things. So what I want to do is get you to move around and get some freedom very gently, little doses at a time. I might have them eat four or five times a day. Is that ideal for mitochondrial function? No. Is it ideal because you're putting less load on a broken system one bit at a time? Yeah. Like I wouldn't take someone with gut issues and give them one meal a day like the OMAD diet because you're putting a huge load in one burst on a crippled system. You're not going to ask someone with a broken leg to go for a run. Push them in a wheelchair, right? Move them around a little bit. Get them outside. Get some sunshine. Little bits tend to work better in those cases that I find for those with gut issues provided those little bits are in conjunction with processes and protocols to get them to repair their gut. Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, Josh, I know that you've got other things to move on to. Um, Where can people find you if they want to make connections with you? Well, the easiest place to find out more about me or anything I do is by looking up the reversible podcast. That's reverse able. That's Mm -hmm. reverse A-B-L-E, the ultimate gut health podcast. And of course, you can always check out reverseablepod.com. And on reversiblepod.com, we got all the contact info, there's contact sheets there. And we actually have free gut health programs as well that I recommend on there. I've made um, just for people who want to improve you know, irritable bowel or fatty liver, acid reflux, all the basics. And of course, if you want to listen to the show, we'd love to have you over to, to take a peek. On Reversible, the Ultimate Gut Health Podcast, we really talk about all things gut. It's not just, you know, talking about what your gut is doing and how important it is. We talk with doctors about all the things in life that affect your gut and we make the gut connection. So you understand it's at the center of all of it. We talk about how your gut affects the world, how your world affects your gut. We talk about food and farming and disease and medication and medical practice and hormones, all kinds of stuff and how we can start inside of our gut to optimize our health in other places. 
Josh, we have a closing tradition on the podcast where the uh, guest gives the last word to the audience. So if you could leave people one thing to remember and only one thing, what would you say it would be? I love that. I do a very, very similar on my show when I remember at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that. Number one thing, understand that we need to have a better reverence for our gut. You have 130 more times genetic material inside your gut than the rest of your body. It integrates with everything that you do. There's nothing in your body, everything from hair growth to energy to sleep, moods, hormones, that's, it's all impacted by your gut. If you even have the slightest bit of gut issues, you're on a very slippery slope and a trajectory downhill to open up the window to almost every single disease you can possibly imagine. Right, 93% of the leading causes of death can be tied back to the gut. And so you may not feel it now, but you're opening that door and you may be on a very slippery slope you won't recognize for five years or 10 years. But when you get that arthritis, you get that Alzheimer's, you get that MS diagnosis or lupus, you're going to wish you started with your gut. Josh Deck, thanks so much for coming on. Sean, it's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you to everyone who has listened, everyone who ever will listen. I'll post a link to the podcast in the show notes later so you can have a direct uh, link right to it. But until then, folks, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Train hard. Peace out. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you walk away with something useful from the episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to my publishing platform called Samo Lives. It's the same platform I upload all my episodes and I write my articles and my blogs and wherever else comes to mind I think is worth sharing with the world. The link is featured at the bottom of the show notes of every episode. By subscribing, you are becoming one of the very first that gets alerted whenever a new episode or a new uh, blog or a new contribution piece becomes available on the platform. You can also follow the show Fitness Reborn with Sean by clicking the follow button on either Apple or Spotify or whatever your preferred streaming platform happens to be. I want you to know that your listenership, your viewership, and your continued support and your well-being mean the very world to me. Thank you so much. I hope to see you next time. Take care.